Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Just a very quick intro today, which is to give my usual, yet still heartfelt thanks to all of my patrons on Patreon. I have no new patrons this week, so I thought I would give special love to my longest-serving patrons out there. Now, I don't usually like to give out surnames, as I'm never sure if the person would like me to. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. But because I'd like these people to know who they are, I'll give the initial. So, special hugs and thank yous to listeners Hannah S., Megan P., Michelle D., and Connor F. All of these people started giving to this show way back in September last year, and are still donating to this day. I know that a couple of them at least have been listening to this show almost from the very beginning. They truly are hardcore fans. Remember to keep up the show via the Facebook and Twitter pages, and remember to rate and subscribe to the show wherever it is that you download your podcasts. To all you new listeners out there, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 54, Catherine Parr, The Reluctant Queen. Plenty of women have become Queen of England against their will. Very few of them even had a say in the matter, particularly those from abroad. Some were too young to have been able to give in consent, even if they had been asked. 
So Catherine Parr was far from unprecedented in becoming a reluctant queen. Like most of her predecessors, though, she didn't wallow in self-pity and resolved to make the best of it. Indeed, if queen she must be, then she wanted to take full advantage. Her first task was to surround herself with friends and allies. These included many people whom we have already met. Her sister Anne and stepdaughter Margaret were given prominent positions among her ladies-in-waiting, and they would later be joined by some of Henry's nieces. Henry was well known for plucking mistresses out of his wife's household. Indeed, he had married three of them after disposing of their predecessors, and so Catherine was determined that all her ladies were loyal to her and kept on a short leash. She also recognised the need to promote other members of her extended clan to positions of prominence. Her uncle William was made her Lord Chamberlain, and her brother William was finally made the Earl of Essex, the title which had been his aim ever since marrying the heiress before that all went wrong. She was also determined to look the part as queen. She was not a dour lady. She had a great interest in fashion and understood the role that it played in elevating her position and that of England on the diplomatic stage. If you looked magnificent, it made England look strong and powerful. This is reflected in some pretty enormous bills that she racked up during her reign. She wasn't one to skimp on the finer things in life. This wasn't just for herself. She wanted everyone in her household to look the part, and made sure that everyone wore her signature colour, crimson, from the footmen to the fools and the players. Speaking of which, she was a big fan of drama, and so kept companies of players and minstrels, as well as some fools to entertain her, and of hunting, as I mentioned last week, which is shown in bills for her greyhounds. She collected clocks and watches, and was also known for being an inveterate bather. Much has been made of the lack of personal hygiene in medieval and Tudor England, but Catherine was noted for being fond of milk baths, and we also have bills for expensive perfumes, oils, and breath lozenges. Her principal passion, though, was for art. We know of at least seven portraits and miniatures that were made of her, far more than we have for any of her predecessors, and some of them survive to this day. These include two, which currently hang in the National Portrait Gallery in London, and another that's in Lambeth Palace. These portraits were either destined for her own possession, or given as gifts to close friends, or in the case of Thomas Seymour, former flames. These commissions would not have come cheap, but she wasn't especially interested in paying her bills, which meant that she racked up quite a bit of debt. This, though, did nothing to lessen her popularity as Queen. It would be a stretch to say that she was loved, but she was definitely respected by her peers. According to the Chronicle of Henry VIII, quote, Queen Catherine was quieter than any of the young wives the king had, and as she knew more of the world, she always got on pleasantly with the king and had no caprices, and paid much honour to Madame Mary and the wives of the nobles. I think here Catherine is benefiting from the hangover after her predecessor Catherine Howard, who was in many ways the complete opposite to her. Young, naive, and inexperienced. Her refinement, flair for fashion, and love of dancing meant that she was an excellent organiser and hostess of the court. This was remarkable given that she had little experience in how to fill this role, as she had only ever been expected to be the wife of a minor noble. And yet she completely excelled. The secretary of a visiting Spanish duke was completely dazzled by her. Quote, the queen has a lively and pleasing appearance, and is praised as a virtuous woman. She was dressed in a robe of cloth of gold, 
had a petticoat of brocade with sleeves lined with crimson satin, and trimmed with three-piled crimson velvet. Her train was more than two yards long. Suspended from her neck were two crosses and a jewel of very rich diamonds, and in her headdress were many and beautiful ones. Her girdle was of gold, with very large pendants. He then goes on to describe the evening's entertainment which Catherine had organised. Quote, the Queen entered with the princesses and ladies, and having seated herself, she commanded the Duke to sit down, and musicians with violins were introduced. The Queen danced first with her brother, very gracefully, then the Princess Mary and the Princess of Scotland danced with other gentlemen, and many other ladies did the same. After the dancing was finished, which lasted several hours, the Queen entered again into her chamber, having previously called one of the gentlemen who spoke Spanish to offer in her name some presents to the Duke, who again kissed her hand. England had not had a queen like this since the days of Anne Boleyn, and Catherine's skills in dealing with foreign visitors was not limited to fancy dances. Henry quickly grew to trust Catherine with some of his foreign relationships, and was seen by diplomats as having considerable influence over the king. This was especially important in England's relationship with Charles V. The emperor recognised the influence of Catherine in orders to our old friend Eustace Chapuis. Quote, you are doing the right thing in keeping on good terms with the Queen. Do not fail, whenever the opportunity offers, to address her out most cordial commendations. Catherine was close to the imperial diplomats at court, probably aided by her good relationship with Princess Mary, who was of course Charles's cousin. There are a number of notes in various places of her discussing matters of state with them, something that we have not seen in quite some time. The greatest mark, though, of the esteem in which her husband held her came in the second year of her queenship. As I mentioned in the last episode, Francis I and Charles V were at it again in the mid-1540s, tearing up northern Italy in their continual battle for supremacy. Henry was allied with Charles V. Clearly they had let bygones be bygones after the appalling way he had treated Catherine Aragon. The idea was a classic one. Make Francis fight a war on two fronts, against Charles in Italy and England in northern France. Before he could send troops to the continent, though, he had to deal with France's old ally, the Scots. Henry had been looking to interfere with affairs north of the border for quite some time. King James V, after all, was his nephew, and tensions led to a disastrous Scottish invasion of the north of England that was destroyed at Solway Moss. This was compounded by the death of King James a few weeks after, leaving a 60-year-old Princess Mary, known to history as Mary Queen of Scots, as the monarch. Henry wanted to take advantage of the situation by marrying his son Edward to Mary, which would lead to a union of the crowns. At least, that was the theory. This is all part of a period of Anglo-Scottish relations known as the rough wooing that I mentioned last week. I could talk about it more, but that would be a giant sidetrack. For our story, you need to know two basic things. Henry did not see Scotland as a serious threat anymore, and so felt secure enough to lead an army across the Channel. However... Just as he was about to leave, things began to destabilise again, so he needed someone that he could trust in charge. Now in the olden days, he would have trusted things to his chief minister, but the days of Wolsey and Cromwell were over. But he did have a wife whom he respected and trusted, and so he trusted the reins of state to her. This had not happened for 30 years since Catherine of Aragon was put in charge. It was a big deal. Her role was made clear in a resolution adopted by Henry in the Privy Council, from which I will quote the relevant bit. Quote, 
The King's Majesty hath resolved that the Queen's Highness shall be regent in His Grace's absence, and that His Highness's process shall pass and bear test in her name, as in like cases heretofore hath been accustomed, and that a commission be made for this purpose, to be delivered unto her before His Grace's departure, wherein shall be expressed that, for her aid and that better administration of his affairs, she shall in her proceedings use the advice and counsel of the Archbishop of Canterbury, of the Lord Yoffsley, Lord Chancellor of England, the Earl of Hertford, the Bishop of Winchester, and Sir William Petra. It then goes on to mention what should happen in the event of a military emergency. Quote, For a lieutenant in case, and who shall be of counsel with him, his majesty is pleased that my lord of Hertford shall be his lieutenant in case, and to take his commission for that purpose with all things requisite, by the authority of the queen regent, with the advice of the council, aforesaid if need so should require. It then goes on to go into more detail about how an army was to be mustered, equipped and supplied, that sort of thing. So, these orders could be interpreted in a couple of ways, depending on how Catherine wanted to proceed. She could simply be a figurehead, someone notionally at the top of the pyramid, but really just window dressing while others did the actual heavy lifting. But while it is true that she didn't do much grunt work, Catherine was not that kind of woman. She liked to muck in, get involved, and so she threw herself into being the Queen Regent. She ensured that her right to have the final say was respected, received daily briefings from her councillors, and personally wrote to her officers in the field, most particularly in the border areas. This was quite a promotion for a woman whose only previous qualification was being Lady of Snape Castle, but she was clearly eminently capable. This also may have been a trial run for the future. Henry was clearly not a young or well man anymore, and it was considered likely that he might die before his son reached his majority. That, and the dangers of war, meant that Henry composed a will before leaving for France. A successful time as Queen Regent here may lead to her being given the job again should Edward succeed as a minor. She could be monarch in all but name. But first, she had to prove her worth. During the last period of Queen Regency, Scotland under James IV had launched a massive invasion which Catherine of Aragon saw repulsed at the Battle of Flodden. Catherine Parr had no such problems. With a minor on the throne and the kingdom still reeling after the devastating defeat at Solway Moss, Scotland was in no position to test the Queen's resolve. That didn't mean that Catherine, though, was being complacent. In one of her regular letters to Henry in France, she told him of, quote, the apprehension of a Scottish ship by certain fishermen of Rye. She understood the importance of massaging Henry's ego, and so her letters to him are filled with her kind of consulting with him, but really just informing him of things that had been done. She didn't want him to worry at all, and so these letters are full of detail, both on matters of state, but also of her own health and that of Henry's children. She also had to deal with a nasty plague outbreak, which forced her to decree that, quote, No person whose house is infected, or has been where the plague is, shall come to court or permit attendance at court to resort to his house, to avoid danger to the queen, the prince, and the other king's children. Meanwhile, over in France, things were going rather well, but Henry needed support from home. In one of his letters back to the council, he requested more money and more reinforcements, the raising for which Catherine took personal charge. However, much like a student away from home for the first time, he was pretty crappy at replying to Catherine's letters. Indeed, it wasn't until a few months into the campaign that he sent her an update, 
but this is full of details and little boasts, showing just how eager he was to impress his wife. It would be going way too far to consider this marriage a meeting of equals, but it seems clear that, after three successive marriages to women he didn't really respect intellectually, Henry had finally found someone whom he could speak to on important matters and could trust to understand and give sage advice. While regent, Catherine issued five royal proclamations. These related to the position of Frenchmen in England during the war, the pricing of armour, dealing with military deserters, as well as that plague outbreak I'd mentioned earlier. But she didn't just deal with these big ticket items. Much of what she did is probably too deep in the minutia to make it into the historical record. We do know about her dealing with a band of gypsies in Huntington, for example, as well as a dispute between the earls of Cumberland and Shrewsbury. She also got the opportunity to spend much time with Thomas Cranmer, and the two clearly bonded over their shared reformist values. While she had been committed to the ideas of religious reform ever since her first marriage, meeting the Archbishop, whose ideas and beliefs had been honed during his days travelling in Germany, the hotbed of European reformist ideas, further developed her own brand of Protestantism. The two put their heads together and looked to how they could further spread the tide of reform to England. While things were going swimmingly back in England, over on the continent things were becoming more of a mixed bag. When it came to international affairs, Henry was a bit like Charlie Brown, with various European monarchs queuing up to play the role of Lucy. He was always so keen to try and emulate his hero Henry V and lead an all-conquering army into France, but he was always let down by his allies, who were always that bit more cynical. This time, it was Charles V's turn to don the blue dress and pull the ball away at the last minute. Things had actually started rather well for Henry. After arriving on the continent, he split his army in two, with one heading to Montreuil and the other under his personal command attacking Boulogne. After a siege of about a month or so, the city fell and Henry marched in in triumph. But his happiness was quickly dented when he heard that Charles had made unilateral peace with Francis, completely cutting his ally out of the loop and hanging him out to dry. Even Henry knew that his force could not take on the full might of the French army, it was only ever meant to take on their B-team, and so was therefore forced to retreat from the continent with only Boulogne to show for all the effort and money. Henry was now then back in the hot seat, relieving Catherine of her regency powers, but her job was not yet over. Even though Charles had somewhat betrayed Henry by making the separate peace, England still needed the Empire to protect her against her rather pissed-off frauds, and Catherine played her part in protecting that relationship. When East Chapuis was finally recalled after years of serving as an imperial ambassador for almost two decades, Catherine was keen to see him off and make a good final impression. According to the man himself, she, quote, "...was very sorry for my departure, as she had been told that I had always acted well in my office, and the king had confidence in me." On the other hand, she doubted not my health would be better on the other side of the water. So far, so polite. But she then went on to try and keep him on England's side. She said to him that he could, quote, Do as much on the other side as here, for the preservation of the amity between your majesty and the king, of which I have been one of the chief promoters. She wasn't just saying all the right things here. She had also brought along a secret weapon, Princess Mary. Chapuis had been Mary's chief advocate in England for pretty much all her life. All those vicious diatribes against Anne Boleyn and countless letters afterwards to Charles were all in aid of ensuring that Mary got what was owed to her. By bringing Mary along, Catherine was showing to Chapuis, and by extension to Charles, that she too was a defender of the princess's rights. I'll come back to her relationship with Henry's children in a second, 
but I'd like to finish off Catherine's role on the diplomatic stage. While she'd done all she could do to help Henry in his dealings with Charles, the fact was that the Emperor was not going to compromise the peace with France by lifting a single finger to help his ally. Therefore, England was under threat of invasion, with France amassing over 200 ships, a larger armada than Philip of Spain would send against Queen Elizabeth 40 years later. They set sail in July 1545, and were met in the Solent by Henry's own navy, led by his magnificent flagship, the Mary Rose. With Henry and Catherine watching on from Portsmouth, the enormous ship capsized and sank, drowning 400 sailors. Nevertheless, the invasion was repelled. England was safe. During her time as regent, Catherine had not spent all of her time dealing with matters of state. She had also been building relationships with Henry's children. Now, of course, she was already very close with Mary, but she didn't have much of a relationship with Elizabeth or Edward. However, Catherine, who was, of course, childless, was very used to the position of stepmother, as she had been one for Lord Latimer's children for many years now, and had a very good relationship in particular with her stepdaughter, Margaret. Elizabeth had been largely absent from court for much of her life, usually only brought back for major occasions. Her residence was at Ash Ridge in Hertfordshire, a place that she regarded as her exile. Under Catherine Parr, though, she spent more time at court as part of the Queen's household, though her relationship with her father remained rocky. Indeed, shortly after Catherine became Queen, Henry had banished Elizabeth from court, and it was only once he departed for the continent that she was allowed to return. Elizabeth had not really ever had a mother figure in her life up to that point. Jane Seymour and Anne of Cleves had taken an interest, but neither had been around for long enough to make much impact. Both she and her sister Mary were still officially illegitimate, and their futures were very much uncertain. That she really latched onto her stepmother is beyond doubt. Here is a letter that the ten-year-old princess wrote to her stepmother in Italian while she was acting as regent. Quote, Inimical fortune, envious of all good and ever-revolving human affairs, has deprived me for a whole year of your most illustrious presence, and, not thus content, has yet again robbed me of the same good, which thing would be intolerable for me, did I not hope to enjoy it very soon. And in this my exile I well know that the clemency of your highness has had as much care and solicitude for my health as the king's majesty himself by which thing I am not only bound to serve you, but also to revere you with filial love, since I understand that your most illustrious highness has not forgotten me every time you requested from you. For heretofore I have not dared to write to him. Wherefore I now humbly pray your most excellent highness, that when you write to his majesty you will condescend to recommend me to him, praying ever for his sweet benediction, and similarly entreating our Lord God to send him best success and the obtaining of victory over his enemies, so that your highness and I may, as soon as possible, rejoice together with him on his happy return. No less pray, I God, that he would preserve your most illustrious highness, to whose grace, humbly kissing your hands, I offer and recommend myself. From St. James's, this 31st of July, your most obedient daughter and most faithful servant, Elizabeth. I've talked a bit already about Catherine's relationship with Princess Mary, but this only deepened after becoming her stepmother. In reality, given their similar ages, their day-to-day relationship would have been more sororal. Given the difference in their religious beliefs, one might have expected the two to become enemies, but this was not the case. Mary, largely thanks to Protestant propagandists, has a very negative reputation, particularly in her dealings with Protestants, but her relatively close relationship with Catherine and her sister Elizabeth 
show that she was not the crazed zealot that history has sometimes portrayed her as being. In the case of Catherine, it seems that it was not just their own friendship, but the fact that their beloved mothers had been so close as well that bonded them. She was determined to improve the relationship between father and daughter. In the words of historian Susan James, quote, There must have seemed to the Queen a sense of moral rightness of welcoming back the prodigal child, of restoring the lost lambs to the proper order of things, in the return of Mary to her father's good graces. In the case of her youngest stepchild, Prince Edward, the relationship was a little different, as Catherine was not seeking to promote the position of a neglected princess. Edward was the future of England, an apple of his father's eye. Yet he too had been without a serious maternal figure since the death of his mother. Aged only five when Catherine became queen, Edward was a precocious child, just like his two sisters. Unlike Mary and Elizabeth, he quickly bonded with Catherine. There are numerous letters that survive between the two. Here is one particularly cute one. Quote, most honourable, entirely beloved mother, I have me most humbly recommended to your grace with like thanks, both that your grace did accept so gently my simple and rude letters, which do give me much comfort and encouragement to go forward in such things wherein your grace beareth me on hand, that I am already entered. I pray God I may be able in part to satisfy the good expectation of the King's Majesty, my father, and of your grace, whom God have ever in his most blessed keeping, your loving son, E. Prince. Regarding this letter and the last, could you ever imagine either Elizabeth or Edward writing such letters to Catherine Howard? While her relationship with Edward was fairly close, as the heir to the throne his household was completely separate from Catherine's, and so she was far closer to Mary and Elizabeth. She did, though, take a great interest in their education, especially Elizabeth, as Edward's was largely already taken care of. Both she and her mother had been given a more than usually comprehensive education for a contemporary woman, and she was determined that Elizabeth not be left out of this. Both Edward and Elizabeth were surrounded by reformist tutors, but Catherine can't take too much of the credit for this, as in the period, the upper echelons of academia were teeming with Protestants and reformist mind types. Among their number was John Check, a protégé of Catherine's almoner, the Bishop of Chichester, and Robert Ascombe, whom she had known since childhood. The extent to which the appointment of these tutors was down to her is disputed, but there is no doubt that at the very least she approved of these teachers who shared her religious views, and it's very possible that she had a hand in their appointment. Catherine's interest in education went beyond the interests of her stepchildren. In the autumn of 1545, Henry obtained from Parliament the right to, essentially due to England's two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, what he had done to the monasteries. Understandably, these two venerable institutions were bricking it in fear of what may happen to them. Knowing the Queen's twin reputation of being both an educated woman with a love for learning and someone with influence with the King, they appealed to her for help. In a reply to the University of Cambridge, she promised them that she would do what she could. She wrote that she had spoken to her husband, quote, For the establishment of your livelihood and possessions, in which His Highness, being such a patron to good learning, doth tend you so much that he would rather advance learning and erect new occasion thereof than confound your ancient and godly institutions. While she was not able to fully protect the universities from Henry's desire to plunder them of their wealth, she did manage to make sure that they survived his reign relatively intact. Back to Henry's children, though, the close relationships that she developed with them made her their chief advocate at court, especially in relation to the daughters. It became one of Catherine's main aims while Queen to do something that no other Queen had dared do, 
restore Mary and Elizabeth to the succession. The law that sidelined them from any future of the crown on their head was the Second Succession Act of 1536, passed a few days after the execution of Anne Boleyn. This had completely and explicitly stated that Mary and Elizabeth were excluded from the line of succession. However, only a few months into Catherine's queenship, a new law was passed, imaginatively named the Third Succession Act. This stated that, on Henry's death, the crown were first passed to Edward, then any children of Henry and Catherine, male or female, but then it states that if there were no heirs left after all these people had died, then, quote, the said imperial crown and all other premises shall be to the Lady Mary, the King's Highness's daughter, and to the heirs of the body of the same Lady Mary lawfully begotten, with such conditions as by His Highness shall be limited by his letters patents under his great seal, or by His Majesty's last will, in writing sign with his gracious hand. And for default of such issue, the said imperial crown and other the premises shall be to the Lady Elizabeth, the King's second daughter, and to the heirs of the body of the said Lady Elizabeth lawfully begotten. There is absolutely no doubt in the sources that this had a lot to do with the lobbying of Catherine Parr. Mary and Elizabeth were still not quite in their rightful place, as they should really have been above any children of Henry and Catherine Parr, but all the same, this was a huge step up in their influence. They may still be considered illegitimate, but existing law allowed Henry to essentially name his successors as he wished, and so he did. More than almost anything else, this episode proves the level of influence that Catherine had right from the word go over Henry. Ended by the fact that there was no Wolsey or Cromwell or anyone of that calibre at court to challenge her, she filled the role of Henry's most infinite advisor. In the words of Susan James, quote, Her marital obligations were satisfied through a combination of sexual submission, an attitude of affectionate encouragement, and a game plan of calculated coaxing that flattered Henry's ego and satisfied his emotional and physical desires. The result achieved was an influence over her husband that was second to none. It's worth asking at this point exactly why Catherine stuck her neck out so far for Mary and Elizabeth. She knew the dangers that came with interfering in Henry's family, the volatility in his relationship with his daughters. Moreover, she knew that he was more than willing to have a wife executed if he perceived her to have crossed some sort of line. Well, I think there are two reasons. The first one is one that I've already outlined. She was an experienced stepmother and seems to have had true and genuine affection for all her stepchildren, especially for her three stepdaughters. She had had a very strong maternal figure and wanted to pass that down to Margaret, Mary and Elizabeth. But, lest we forget that she was only human, there was another, far more cynical side that I have also brought up. She was planning for the future, one in which her husband was dead and she a mere widow. She, of course, was an experienced widow, she had been there twice before, and she knew both the dangers and the advantages that widowhood produced. The key was preparation, and so you can see this accumulation of power through the strong bonds that she was building with the heirs to the throne. The experience in political and diplomatic affairs that she gained while Queen Regent, and the closeness of her bond with the King, which no doubt would pay off in his will, that she was preparing to be a major fixture at the apex of English power for a long time to come. England had been ruled by powerful Queen Regents before, see Margaret of Anjou and Anne of Aquitaine, but she had also seen Dowager Queens pushed aside and discarded, even when the new king was in minority. Power at court wasn't something that just came to you in the night. You had to nurture it and grasp it tightly when the moment came. All of this interest in Henry's children does also mask one mark against her queenship, 
her failure to produce any children. Now, as we discussed last week, the odds were not exactly in her favour. Henry was not the most virile man, especially now, and Catherine was now fairly old by Tudor standards to be having children. That said, I think it's fair to say that while Henry would have been disappointed in not having any children with Catherine Parr, the fact is that if he had really wanted more kids, he would have married someone else. He had his heir, and he seemed healthy enough. It was a little more precarious than everyone would have liked, but there was little to suggest that Edward would not turn out to have a long and healthy life. Speaking of which, it's time to talk briefly about the role that Catherine Parr is most famous for having played, that of the nurse. I think I've already made my opinions fairly known about the fact that she was far more than just a nice plain lady who helped Henry in his twilight years. She was so much more than that as we have seen so far and we will continue to do next week. But this myth persists, and so let's look at it briefly before we finish for this week. There is absolutely no evidence that Catherine directly served as the king's nurse. None. Of course there isn't. He had a whole array of servants, doctors and other people to do that. To be the king's nurse would be beneath the royal dignity of the office of queen. Now, did she occasionally help Henry when he was in pain? Was she involved in the process of caring for him? Yes, yes she was, but that's very different from being a nurse. Indeed, as we shall see in Henry's final days and weeks, she was not particularly close to him. This view of Catherine seems to come from the Victorian era, and imagines Catherine as having spent her entire reign essentially bandaging the king's ulcers and soothing his pains, i.e. what they believed a wife should be doing back then. Catherine, in the first couple of years of her queen, had made as strong an impression so far as any we have yet looked at. A stunning debut. She had secured her position, built a power base, gained the trust of her husband, and even taken care of the kingdom while Henry went off to France for one final shot at glory. Yet, and yet, all of this, as remarkable as it all was, isn't the most important aspect of Catherine's legacy. For England had had queens who had acted as regents before. She had queens who had acted as loving stepmothers, who had gained the respect of foreign diplomats and been trusted to interact with them. While all these things were unusual in a queen, they weren't unheard of. They weren't unique. But Catherine does have an exceptional aspect to her legacy, something that marks her out as being different from everyone that had gone before her. Now, I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. I've alluded to it a ton already. But if not, I guess this loosely qualifies as a cliffhanger because that's the end for today's episode. Join me next week as we delve deep into what makes Catherine such a special queen and her fraught final months as factions at court sought to make her yet another of Henry's wives to meet a premature end. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.